Welcome to another edition of the Forward Together podcast. My name is Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust and joined today, you'll all be shocked by, I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Paul, how are you? I'm grand, Gerard, as ever. Good stuff. So you're in a slightly different location today, Paul, in case you saw a wee bit different people, but uh, the quality of the conversation will be as good as ever. So Paul, today we're joined, or you've had a conversation with Professor Paddy Gray from Ulster University. Paddy's specialism is housing. Paul has come up umpteen times in conversations with other people. Why is housing so important? Yeah, I mean, we've been at this now a few years, Gerard, and the conversations around peace and reconciliation come back very much to how we reconcile our society. And the only way we can do that is for people to learn to live together, literally in terms of having shared and integrated housing. While there's lots and lots of focus about the needs and benefits of integrated education, at least as important to that is integrated communities. And that means having housing estates where people live in ways that actually people feel comfortable with each other. And actually one of the conversations in the last season we had was with Father Martin McGill in West Belfast, where he stressed that there needs to be much more focus on the integration of housing. And actually he went further than that and he said that we need people who are willing to go beyond what is expected of them to live in communities that wouldn't naturally be the places they feel most comfortably. Uh, yeah. and, and that is the type of change that we need in our society because we need people to, to move out of their comfort zone in terms of where they've been brought up and to live in shared communities. Yeah, in Hollywell Trust, we ran a project called the Intentional Community, where we tried to get people to do just that. And there's a bit of resistance to that, I have to say, because safety is also really important to people. But Paddy talks about a few practical things when it comes to the current housing market or the housing situation here, particularly around the private uh, rental market and how that impacts on social housing or the other way about this case, maybe. It's very important to understand how the housing market has changed in recent years. I mean, the, the provision of social housing in terms of numbers, uh, there's, there's many fewer house, social housing units now than there were a few years ago. Uh, and that's because of the right to buy. A lot of people bought them under the right to buy legislation, but a lot of those properties are no longer owned by the people who live there. They are actually rented out. So what we've had is we've had a big increase in social housing that's become privately rented accommodation, in addition to which, because the social housing provision is much less than the demand, there's been a big increase in the demand for privately owned housing. So you see that shift and you see that in the numbers. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a big increase in private rental accommodation. And I think from memory, it's it's bigger than any other part of the UK as well. Yeah, I, it's, it's it. Paddy does, I think, give statistics during the conversation but i suppose part of the challenge is the need for private rental comes from the fact as you say that there wasn't the social housing developed at the scale that we needed it to be that's partly down to the restrictions that were placed the public borrowing restrictions that were placed on the housing executive that's right because i mean the housing executive is is owned by government it's part of the department for communities essentially and uh, there are restrictions on how much the public sector is allowed to borrow those restrictions became even stronger a few years ago because of the Office for National Statistics reclassified social housing providers as part of the public sector. And that means that in order to borrow money to build new houses, or even to borrow money at the scale needed to improve the existing housing stock, 
the housing executive, housing executive needs to be reformatted in a way that separates it a bit from the structure of government. And there are proposals that have been brought forward by the minister for it to become a mutual type of cooperative uh, in which the, the tenants become owners and managers of the housing stock. Um, but that's not yet been agreed. This whole question about how the housing executive is to be reformed to enable it to borrow more, to spend more on its housing and to, buy a, to build new housing, that has been in real difficulty for years because there's not been a political consensus. And to be honest, there still isn't a political consensus about how it will be restructured. Okay, well, let's hear the conversation that you had with Paddy now. So thanks very much for doing this, uh, this Paddy. Clearly, housing tensions around social housing were one of the factors that led to the civil unrest, the, the troubles um, and all the traumas that we've had over generations. What do you think we can learn from that in terms of political leadership and also leadership in the housing sector? Well, I suppose it's, uh, you know, when we think back to, to the, obviously the, the troubles in late 60s, early 70s, the, you know, the civil rights movement in particular was about poor quality housing and discrimination in housing. And I suppose we've made a lot of inroads in that sense in that, you know, unfitness levels have come down from one in five to now around two or three percent, you know, so quite, it's been quite significant. There's been a lot of new housing built. Uh, existing housing refurbished. Unfortunately, a lot of it has been demolished in the 70s, which dispersed communities. And um, what the, I suppose the, the tragic or the tragedy of, of, of it all is that we still have high, highly segregated communities. And I suppose that's where the leadership failed. I think that maybe that there could have been something more proactive. Now, I'm not saying that things aren't being done. There's certainly a lot of work through the uh, Together Building in the United Community. Uh, initiative to try and, uh, but it's incremental, it's small, and you know, it's not making a, fun, a massive impact on the segregation that exists, which reinforces cultural differences. And also, I suppose one could say that the, the problems are being addressed within the social housing sector, but where we've got the deprivation today is in the private rented sector. And in a sense, that is a failure to deal with where the problems are today. Well, yes. I mean, if you if you take rented housing and you take social housing, obviously there there are a number of housing associations plus the housing executive that are funded in order to manage uh, and you know repair and uh, build new housing. In the private rental sector, it's very much left to landlords, and you know we have a cottage industry in Northern Ireland where there are a lot of uh, landlords with very small portfolios. You know, the intentions are good. We do have, a, a, obviously, rogue landlords. We do have people who are particularly, uh, you know, sort of, um, they don't look after the standards, the health of the people or whatever. But the vast majority, most research that I've been involved in, a lot of landlords want to, 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 to actually provide good housing and obviously get a return on that housing. A lot of it, they're, we're unintentional landlords. It might be relief properties, maybe people who bought properties during the boom in order to sort of secure a, a pension at the end of it or whatever. So, you know, it's but the private rental sector is such a, a disparate group of people. You have, um, you know, you're right, you have a substantial now amount of people in the private rental sector that probably would have been social housing tenants 
if we had enough social housing. And some of it actually used to be social housing and was bought under the right to buy and now becomes private rented accommodation and perhaps not maintained to the same standard. Yeah, that's right. I was just going to come to that. The um, You've got, you know, through the right to buy at substantial discounts, 60 to 60%, 70% for flats. You know, a lot was bought off and normally the better off housing was bought in the more desirable areas. Now, estimates in, in, in UK and wide, I mean, anecdotal obviously but you know estimates that are around uh, two and five of those are now back private, being privately rented many receiving housing benefits is important to underpin that so in a way like you know when you think of the economics was it a good idea at the time certainly i suppose it was to stabilize communities or some people will say it was actually to privatize housing and um you know but at the end of the day what it did what it did do is that uh, the private rental sector now is over is higher proportionally uh, than the social sector whereas it was you know right down at around five percent in the in the 70s and 80s so i mean it's grown dramatically but the regulation hasn't grown with it and And is that is that a failure of political leadership not to actually require reformed management of the private sector I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't put the blame on political leadership. It was very much the the state of flux that we find ourselves in for so long, and the losing of the assembly again. There had been plans to introduce uh, more rigid regulation. Now, not not to the extent that, that that exists in the south of Ireland, but I mean, you know, certainly to introduce things around standards and things around management and education and and even there was talk of accreditation of landlords and so forth but you know that was stalled with the assembly stalling a lot of things stacked up including that and still waiting uh, to come out i mean they, they did have a review of the private rental sector and they did the intentions were good but you know it was just a maybe a, a mixture of uh, lack of political leadership but also the <laughs> lack of um, just the general politics in northern ireland that actually affected many things including the private rental sector now, clearly, I mean, the housing association sector has taken over a lot of the leadership role in terms of social housing. Um, but there have been criticisms about the, the salaries paid at the, the senior management levels within the housing association sector. I mean, to what extent do you feel that housing associations can take over the role of the housing executive? Well, I suppose um, it, was, it wasn't really... Uh, you know, it, it wasn't offered by the housing executive. It was something that was imposed uh, by the department and followed the same lines as what happened in England and Scotland and Wales, whereby the um, because the housing executive is still a public body and it comes under the public sector borrowing requirement, they obviously weren't allowed to borrow privately, which would have increased the public debt. Um, housing associations can do that. But at the same time, there's no reason why they couldn't have created the housing executive into a large housing association like they did in Glasgow. Uh, the Glasgow Housing Association, which has uh, invested billions in, in, in retrofit and new build and so forth since it was transferred in 2003 and still retains tenants on its board. In fact, the chair of the ten- of the board is a tenant, then the vice chair, and a probably a Liverview chair because it, it is a rule that the, the chair must be a tenant. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, ways that we could have done this, but you're right, the association movement has taken over new build from really the early noughties. And um, but they're they're also borrowing private money. So it works on, you know, crudely on a 50-50%, you know, they get 50% grant and they borrow 50%. But in a in a way, like, you know, they have to then obviously pay that 50% back. 
and it depends on the rates they can get. It depends on the the deals they can get, the covenants, the the um, and then of course the rents in many ways has to pay that back. So you'll find the rents in the housing association sector are higher than in the housing executive. And but actually, if you com- if you compare the, the the public sector costs within Northern Ireland with the other parts of the UK, one of those highest levels of costs is is borne by the fact that we subsidise rents within uh, the housing executive more than you would find in other parts of the UK. Well, it, I mean, the, the, the actual subs, do you mean by housing benefit? Uh, no, I mean, the, uh, I, I'm, I'm moving beyond my, my specialist knowledge here, Paddy. Uh, you, you're finding me out. <laughs> but uh, when I looked some years ago comparing the, uh, the, the cost structure of the public sector in Northern Ireland with the other parts of the UK, it was the, 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 the housing management costs that I assume were related to the housing executive that were, was a significant higher burden in terms of Northern Ireland. Well, that, that, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have those figures, Paul. But you know, I do know that you know that that housing here has been high, high, you know has been a higher subsidy. The mm. fact that the housing executive was operating on uh, a 100% grant, you know that uh, whereas local authority, most local authorities and across the water had uh, transferred their stock. Uh, many the whole the whole lot of it, as I mentioned, Glasgow. And you know, Sunderland place like that there, you know, and some uh, transferred it to a number of housing associations like Liverpool. But you know, you they, you had Birmingham who retained it and, and Edinburgh who retained it. But you know, what I'm, I suppose the point I'm making there is that the fact that the housing exactly was hundred percent publicly funded, so the housing management is hundred percent publicly funded. And um so that probably would create a difference when you're doing comparisons with other uh, parts of the UK. And, and ultimately, the rents are lower, I believe, than in other parts of the UK. Well, they're the lowest. And I mean, you know, the when you look at different, I mean, I've seen charts not so long ago showing the, how the housing executive rents are much lower than um, than even the northeast of England, which would be comparable. And, you know, at the end of the day, what's happened is that the housing executive rents haven't gone up to the same extent that they have in other regions. And, and again, that was politics. I mean... The housing executive at the moment can can invest in its properties. It could probably it could borrow on the strength of its rents if it was allowed to put rents up. Um, but that has been, in many ways, that has been stopped basically by ministers over the last number of years. Now there's talk that there will be the rents will bump this year or whatever. Or the um, as we're coming to April now, uh, by I'm not, I'm not sure what percentage, but it'll be announced and. Uh, that, that they may well be able to borrow against their rents to pay, to pay the money back. But, you know, I'm not sure how that works in the public sector borrowing requirement at all. So. Well, you've got the proposal, of course, for the housing executive to be converted into a mutual, a mutual. though that is likely, I believe, to take three or four years before that's processed, assuming it goes through and presuming that there is political agreement behind that across the parties. I mean, do you think that is the best way forward? I mean, because there were... I mean, it's a, it's a problem that's been talked about for several years about the best way of enabling the housing executive to come off the public sector borrowing requirement to enable it to build more homes. But there are other options about whether it would be transferred to a housing association on block or whether it should be broken up into new housing associations that might be regional. I mean, what's your feeling? 
Well, uh, you know, I sort of touched on it before. The um, it's been talked about more than a few years ago. I mean, uh, it's been talked about since uh, the nineteen ninety six uh, review of housing policy. Whenever it was proposed then to uh, encourage housing associations to do the building, and I mean, I know that I mentioned it in an article in nineteen eighty nine <laughs> after the nineteen eighty eight Housing Act in England, which facilitated uh, stock transfers. Uh, so, in a way, the you know. The mutual's fine, but you know, there's an argument: is is mutual still public sector? Is a private sector? And some people will argue. I know colleagues in the academic world will say, "No, it's private." Others will say, "No, no, it's still sitting in the public sector." So I suppose it's getting around that argument. But what what does it matter if you're given the the right? I suppose you know, if you have protection for your residents, if there's protection there, there are different models across the water. I can I can refer again to Glasgow because I'm vice chair of. Uh, Glasgow Housing Association. I mean, we are part of a much larger group called the Weekly Group, and we have over 90,000 properties. But the capacity for us to borrow, and, and, and a left-wing council that supported it, you know, at the time, the, the capacity for us to borrow has been tremendous. We actually consult with our tenants about rent increases, so we would say, look, if we put them up by 2%, you get this. If we put them up by 3%, you get that. And if you put them up by 4%, you get something else. So, and I mean, they, and I mean, we find that uh, in re- not this year, it's been different, but in, re- in some of the years, they've actually gone up with a higher increase uh, simply because it, it works out to maybe a pound a week or something or whatever. But, you know, if you're getting your areas regenerated, you're getting heating schemes put in, there's a lot of, lot of things need to be done there in the future. And we look at carbon emissions, we need to be thinking more about retrofit on existing properties. And, and certainly that's something that Scotland is much more committed to than Northern Ireland. I was looking at the Scottish budget and they're looking to put much more money into retrofitting of social housing than is the case in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, that's, that, that, that certainly has been. And, you know, the targets in Scotland are actually, I think, it's five years less than in England. You know, the 2050, although they brought back to 2030 some of the you know, things. But in Scotland... The major issues have been around, you know, sort of emissions. It's not just housing. I mean, right across the board. And I mean, and they've worked along. I mean, we at Glasgow work along with the Scottish government and, you know, have plans for retrofitting our, our buildings and about, you know, it's, but it's a, not an enormous cost. I mean, when you think in terms of in the last, in the last 15 years, you've been putting gas heating in and then you have to rip it all out again, you know. So you know, and it is a cost, and and that that would have a fact on on our smaller housing associations. We wouldn't have the capacity to, you know, unless you get a hundred percent from, which is unlikely you're going to get. They wouldn't have the capacity to borrow the money to invest in, you know, retrofitting. But then again, you know, the the housing executive stock itself. I mean, Savills in a report about you know, like four years ago now looked at, at what they needed to invest and it was millions they need to invest in their current stock and they don't have the money to do that. So you're gonna have to have a model to say, right, let's let's be a Glasgow. Let's be a you know, if we want to be a mutual, let's be a mutual. But I think the scale of their operation is good because it, it assists with regeneration and with, you know, local community involvement and it is a widely accepted organization on both sides of the community. And, you know, when they did try some of the smaller transfers, they didn't work. People voted against them. So, you know, it's unlikely that, that they would get serious stock transfers. So it's really looking at the model that exists and what's the best way to create, a, you know, some way for it to borrow money and invest in its properties. Which touches on this other issue then, Paddy, about democratisation of housing. 
and whether there's ways that you can enable tenants to be more collectively self-managing properties. I mean, what's your experience? Well, you know, you've had in the past, I mean, certainly across the water, there has been housing cooperatives, there have been, um, you know, local housing companies, things like that, were, were tenant. But then after Grenfell, there was a lot of criticism around that as well. Because well, that, that was the point, wasn't it, that the, the Kensington uh, model uh, for Grenfell, yeah. that was a very different model of collective self-management than other places. It basically worked less well and tenants said they weren't genuinely involved. So it was a structural relationship that wasn't reflected in actual working practices, according to what I've read. Yeah, no, no, that's right. But this, I, I just use it as an example. Mm. I mean, there are examples of good, you know, with uh, arms length management organisations in particular. I mean, you know, operating around Manchester, around because they get the work, that they're still public uh, housing, but that they have a private arm that can borrow money, but they still have, counsel, you know, councillors are still on the boards and tenants are on the boards. The same that I mentioned with Glasgow in our in our housing association, uh, we have uh, three tenants and three public reps on the board. You know, so I mean, there is that still that scope of of you know control from the public sector that they can actually have a an impetus. But we do have private sector experts on as well who can deal with finance and who can deal with the legalities of certain things. So it works quite well. And what do you think uh, is achieved by having more tenant engagement in the management of properties? Well, the tenants have to live in it. I mean, they're the ones that actually have to live in the properties. They're the ones that consume the properties. They're the ones that uh, are involved in the local communities. So why shouldn't they have? You know, there, there are different sort of levels of, of participation. I mean, certainly you can have consultation, which basically means very little. We're going to do this, but we'll tell you about it right through to sort of tenants being involved at the formulation of plans, tenants being involved at the, whenever you're building the dwellings, what type of dwellings are actually needed for them, what kind of road network, what kind of, uh, you know, sort of uh, communication links do they need to, you know, things like that, that it can be an actual, there's a more holistic approach, but the consumer is the one that actually can tell you best as to what's, you know, what, what's required for them. Right at the outset today, Paddy, you, you mentioned about the, the, the fact that we haven't achieved shared housing communities. I mean, where do you think we went wrong and how can we put it right in terms of creating a more integrated and housing, uh, shared housing environment? Well, I'm not, uh, if I give that, I'm not saying we haven't achieved, we have, we have achieved shared housing, but not to the proportion that I would like to see it. I mean, we have... I mean, certainly the, through the uh, Together Building the United Community T-Book, through their strategy, they have actually allocated, you know, substantial monies to housing associations who are building, under the supervision of the housing executive, are building uh, shared housing. And, you know, much of it at the beginning was non-contentious areas, you know, that hadn't really, uh, you know, I suppose, uh, you know, experienced the troubles to, the, you know, that the likes of uh, Derry or, West Belfast and North Belfast would have uh, experienced or even smaller towns. But, you know, what they're trying to do is, is they're trying to work at different levels about, you know, community engagement, getting, you know, a peace wall, one or two peace walls have come down in Belfast. And, uh, you know, it's a matter of, I suppose, getting the peace walls of the mind down, that people will behave across the board and you work on that incrementally is something you can't do overnight. I just think that maybe this all should have started a long time ago. It has started in the in the in the two in the noughties, and I said beginning with the with the you know the the areas like 
uh, Sam Mills, like uh, Yamavari, places that really weren't, you know, they were sort of integrated, I suppose, to a certain extent anyway, and it was all new build. It's the existing estates and how you actually can encourage uh, integration there. Uh, and, and as well as that, there are suggestions that where new shared housing estates have been close to existing lines of tension, that actually you've then had paramilitaries trying to control those areas to prevent them being genuinely shared. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, we had the highly publicised sort of difficulties at the Raven Hill Road uh, a couple of, I think it was a, year, a couple of years ago, maybe, that, uh, you know, where Radius uh, had had, a, had difficulties with people being intimidated in, a, in an area that was close, obviously, to, uh, you know, it was in East Belfast. And, you know, sometimes you can stigmatise an area by saying it's the next area and gives people in the surrounding area maybe uh, the undesirables, maybe something to sort of uh, target them. And I mean, but, you know, I, thankfully that was actually, that was that didn't really uh, manifest itself in any way. And, you know, with, if it's, I think the, the main thing are the, uh, the the contracts that people saying about, you know, not, not flags, not getting involved in... And the intimidatory things, you know, that we have in the past, the, the, uh, so I suppose in many ways it's how it's managed and how, it, and it's trying to retain the uh, mix as well because we still have to operate under a system of allocations that hasn't changed an awful lot since the nineteen seventies. So you're taking people off the top of the waiting list now. If you have a proportion of Celtics and a proportion of Protestants in a housing estate, and three Protestant families leave and three Catholic families are at the top of the list, you know, that's going to immediately, uh, it's not going to be a sort of a, a shared housing estate anymore. So might, I think, and I did, you know, I was involved in doing a review of the allocation system, which hasn't been implemented yet, but looking at maybe, you know, taking those type of types of cases out of the, uh, out of the allocation scheme that maybe you could create shared communities. And, and you know, people that want to win there would have to have a reason to win. And but then again, councillors will say, "Oh no, no, the um, the housing allocation has to be on need." So you know, there's a it's, it's a difficult one. And you've also got the issue that there's a lot more people that would not be uh, inclined to regard themselves as either Protestant or Catholic. Uh, it's increasingly a third sector of our population. Yeah, but I mean, I suppose it depends on where they live or where they want to live. I mean, whether or not a lot of those are already housed, they're maybe they're owner occupiers, maybe they're living in, in mixed areas or, or whatever. You know, or many of those would. Be, I'm sure there are people who'd be willing to go into a mixed area, and but again, it depends where they're being built. Well, know, and, when we did our, our our conversations before the previous levels of podcast, one of the suggestions about the peace walls was the idea of creating a citizens' assembly in the same model that was used in the South to deal with abortion and same-sex marriage, but to have one of those bringing together people from the two communities on the different sides of the peace walls to, to talk about how they can overcome what are often very similar social challenges, economic challenges on the two sides, that, to try and mould the two communities together through those types of conversations. Do you think that's something that is practically achievable? I, I certainly like the idea. I mean, I've, I've already heard that, you know, that being mooted about. And uh, I, I like, you know, any, any type of collective action, community action that would, you know, encourage people from both sides to sit down and trash out what are the problems here, what are the solutions. And, you know, if you, I mean, with good leadership, 
I mean, that's that is, that is the best way to do it, I think. And I mean, it might not happen overnight, but it certainly can happen incrementally. You can maybe take a part of the wall down. You could maybe, you know, have more, you know, community get-togethers and things, people get to know you and so forth. Yes, I'd be totally in favour of that. And what do you see the future of housing in Northern Ireland to be? I mean, because one of the things that uh, I've observed amongst housing associations in England is that some of them have very progressive, active social and economic policies to engage tenants and to, to assist them into work with training programs and running creches and various workplace uh, activities. I mean, do you think there was more opportunities in Northern Ireland to do something similar? I think that it's already been done, you know, not to, probably not to the same extent. They're probably not that they're not, they're not publicised enough. But I mean, in England, I suppose they're, they're in many ways, they, they're following the Social Value Act in 2012, which basically compelled local authorities and others to, to, to go beyond, you know, and, and measure social impact. And how you measure that, I mean, many of the associations that I know here, and the housing side as well, are doing a lot of that. They're doing, you know, the local community gardens, the community engagement officers, they've, uh, they've, they've, you know, within their business plans and within their strategies, they're looking at actually doing what they call Housing Plus, doing much more than just bricks and mortar and managing and collecting rents. It's about creating communities. It's about, and I think there's a lot of value there. And, and, and again, if, if I can refer back to Scotland, in the Wheatley Group, we have one of our subsidiaries, which I'm, I sit on the board of as well, is the Wheatley Foundation. And we actually take from all our other subsidiaries and, you know, they give us their, their surplus monies each year and comes into a fund. And we use that exactly for apprenticeships. We use it exactly for uh, food parcels when, when it was needed at Christmas. We use it exactly for education bursaries. We use it for all of those things for our residents, you know. So, and, you know, there's no reason why maybe we could do something more collectively together. I mean, why have 20 housing associations all operating different ways, you know, and and, uh, and the housing executive, let's say, well, let's, let's get together and do something here. We'll put something into a fund that will actually uh, create, you know, at the end of the day, create, uh, you know, betterment and, and, and enhance well-being. And, you know, when you think of most of the housing estates nowadays, because of the right to buy, many within those are either older occupiers or private renters. And sometimes the private renters isn't worth transient group. And, you know, it's basically, again, well, you, can, you know, if you want to do something good for the community, it has to be for the whole community. You know what I mean? And that people can identify and, can, you know, get ownership within their within where they live. So I think there's a lot of potential there. And I suppose I suppose that links with the the Preston model in England, where you're looking for how state bodies and organisations associated with the state can become more active participants in the economy in terms of promoting well-being. Uh, and that, as as you say, some housing associations in Scotland and England are, are, are very active in doing. Absolutely, I mean, what they've gone much further. I mean, the um, the. Uh, Housing Action Charitable Trust in London has, has actually introduced uh, uh, monitor, putting monetary values to uh, social impact. Where you know, if you become less depressed, it's worth two thousand. You know, they do things like that now. It was very crude to begin with, but they're working on models that actually, if you take political leaders and say, "Well, look, you know, at the end of the day, if you say I want you to put money into the community to, put, to increase well-being, well, we can't see any. We don't know if well-being's been increased. We don't know. But if you're starting to put monetary figures and say, if you do this, you'll get that, 
uh, you know, and you'll and there'll be less pressure on health service. So that's the way to sort of to start to maybe try and measure what you're doing. Now to come up with much more complex measurements, the the National Federation of Housing and the the Act in England have done that. And I mean, you know, so there's no reason why again we couldn't apply some of that to actually look at the value, the social value that we're actually creating in areas. And you know, at a, at a time when we're going to be inundated, going to have a tsunami, probably of mental health issues after the, the lockdown. And I mean, you know, that's something really that we need to be planning for and thinking about. And are there other things, Paddy, you'd like to to see in terms of restructuring of the the housing sector, the social housing sector in particular? I think that we missed the trick by not following the the model. And I mean, again, I'm not being biased towards Glasgow, but just because Glasgow's so close to us, you know. But I mean, that the in a, in a you know in a country that was it would have been right wing, you know, in many ways that they looked and saw the value of investing in social housing, and investing in well being. And how you do that, what you know, you bring the executive out of the public and you do it quickly, but you don't at the expense. The associations are working tirelessly and hard as well. But what you do is you try and create some sort of a, a strategy for Northern Ireland. They, they did have one way back in 2011 or 2012 that had a housing strategy, but you know, I sometimes wonder. I mean, it hasn't come up again because they said they're doing other things now. But I mean, when you do, you look at two, a couple of years ago, I criticized. Uh, housing, you know, they had the T-Buck, right, the, the Together Building a United, United Community, and where they put, they picked five areas to put housing in, and they picked five areas to put shared education in, and none of the areas matched up. I mean, my, you know, I was just sitting looking over it, and I said, well, you know, the first thing you would do is you'd, you'd align them, and if you have mixed education, you know, people are be more likely to live in mixed houses rather than separate them, you know, I mean, that was just a simple thing. You know, they're not aligning strategies, and I think we need to do much more of that there and look at the holistic approach, the effects of health and housing and housing and health, the effects on education, deprivation, uh, you know, and, you know, social isolation, you know, all of those. I think it really need, we need to sit down and think uh, on a much wider basis than, than in silos. When I did these interviews last time for podcasts, uh, Father Martin McGill said that he thought it was a shame that there hadn't been an organisation comparable to the integrated education movement in terms of promoting social housing, or sorry, to promote shared housing. And do you think that there's a validity in that view? I think there is a validity. I mean, I've I've spoken to the integrated education a couple of times. I've had meetings with them and talking about this. And, you know, I think it's, there's a, a wider, you know, issue around that. I mean, that, the, you know, the day they believe, yeah, well, housing is very important here where people live. And I mean, why not sort of create something that's much larger than what it is and would probably have more impact as well if it was larger, covered a number of strands and uh, without getting to the stage where it can do nothing. You know, I'm just thinking in terms of it would be, be more um, impactful in order to sort of give it more teeth and allow it to do it. But I think, again, by isolating education from housing and health I think doesn't serve the best purpose I think that you should actually do bring in a wider uh, you know sort of remit there for an organization that can actually purely look at the well raise above the trees and look at sort of the rise and say well look this is where we want to get to with all of this and this is how we're going to do it you know I mean just as simple as that. So you'd like to see some organization some structure where you 
had promotion of integrated society as a whole. Absolutely, but also that had teeth as well, you know, that actually could, you know, in many ways, but it, it would, you know, it would, it would work along with the, the health trusts and work along with the education sector and would work along with the housing organisations as well. But had, had that power of overseeing, you know, the sort of the, the in many ways, the, you know, looking at, the, at Northern Ireland as a whole, and seeing what's best to do it and what's best to do it in particular areas and what, but at least want something that, that involves health, housing, education, employment and community impact or whatever social value, you know. Thanks very much, Paddy. That's much appreciated. Thank you. Okay, Paul. Cheers. Thanks, Paddy. Good to see you again. And Cheers. you. Cheers. Bye. Okay, Paul, I just want to pick up on a couple of things that Paddy was talking about there during this conversation. I suppose... The thing of most interest, given the, the background of Hollywell Trust and the work that we do, is about shared shared housing and how we do it. And Paddy talks about, um, as well as peace walls, the physical peace walls that are in place, we need to talk about the peace walls of the mind, you know, and, and really start to address that. But a big challenge to that is the, the existing estates. If we're saying that people live together, there's already generations of people that have lived apart. And not only that, but you have these physical demarcation lines, these statements of whose territory you're entering, whose territory you live in. And if you don't feel comfortable with those lines of statement of ownership, then actually either you leave or in some cases you're intimidated out. And that is one of the biggest problems. And it's actually a problem caused by a comparatively small number of people who have very large amounts of influence through their use of flags, marking of territory and in some areas actual physical threat yeah um another challenge if we're going to change and patty talks about this in terms of new housing estates if you're trying to design a new shared housing estate but you also have to stick to need and those who are most in social need of, of housing which is perfectly fair um you might end up where you don't actually have shared housing estates because of the allocation process. It's like people higher up the need might be from the same community background. And so even with your best intentions, we mightn't achieve what we're hoping. Yeah, you have, you have competing ethical demands, really. On the one hand, you've got a policy objective of creating shared housing. On the other hand, we you go back to the beginning of the civil rights demonstrations in Northern Ireland, and the expectation is that people will be treated equally and those in greatest need will get the housing first. And so you have got those competing political priorities and it's very difficult to reconcile. Yeah, well, it, the whole area of housing, I think in Northern Ireland is, is very difficult to reconcile and especially if we're looking to create shared areas. And I'm sure, Paul, it's something that we're going to return to in future episodes. But listen, thanks for having the conversation with Patty. A really interesting conversation. Thanks to Michael Barways for pulling together the edit of this podcast and to the Community Relations Council for the continued support um, for our work. Um, we'll talk to you again soon. Look forward to the next issue. <laughs>